latest edition of the show before the show podcast from MILB.com. I'm trying to be like semi-quiet. I'm in an Airbnb in Seoul and, uh, you know, I share a wall with people. I'm assuming they're like, what? Is that a Skype call ringing at 1.40 in the morning? What? You Americans in your podcast just recording at all hours. You people in your podcasts, unbelievable! Um, but uh, yeah, we're uh, we're gonna do a podcast. It's uh, it's another week of baseball, and we're talking about things. My name is Tyler Mon, and his name is Sam Dykstra. And Sam, how are you? I feel so uh, so out of the loop. Yeah, no, I think things are good. Things are good. We're, we're we'll get to it uh, a little bit in three strikes, but the the playoffs are winding down, as it were. Um, a lot of leagues have already clinched their champions and all that kind of stuff, and. Uh, yeah, it's it's so weird thinking next week uh, is the AAA National Championship and the day after that. So the AAA National Championship is Tuesday. Day after that is the Arizona Fall League opening day. Uh, train keeps a trucking. It, yeah. It, it is, I mean, it, it's kind of nice to keep up that momentum, and we've talked about the AFL changes in the past, so I won't reiterate too much of it, but uh, it's just going to be so weird to not have that break anymore. It's just yeah. immediately picking up with some of the game's best prospects playing in Arizona right after we thought the playoffs were done. Yeah, it is going to be a little bit more than crazy. Um, But uh, we are delighted to welcome you into this week's episode of the show before the show. And you can find us wherever you find your podcasts on uh, Apple Podcasts and Google Play and everywhere else. And you can give us a rating and review and a subscription and uh, get in touch with the show podcast at MILB.com. If you would like, we had a a fan get in touch, send an email uh, to the old podcast address today um, intended for one Benjamin Hill, which was about uh, the Mexican League, Uh, one of our fans who got a chance to check out Little Mexican League Ball. And um, if you would like to tell us your stories about gallivanting around the world of minor league baseball, please do be sure to get in touch. And with that, let's kick things off on three strikes for this week's episode of the show. The playoffs are underway across the minor leagues, as Sam noted just a short moment ago. Uh, Sam, the postseason to this point, what have you seen? What has stood out? Yeah, so uh, I know we had our AAA na- National Championship kind of preview uh, last time out and uh, that is already not aged well, and I'll, I'll fully take you know uh, the opposite of credit for that. Uh, Gwinnett lost three one to AAA Columbus, so Columbus is now in, in the Governor's Cup Finals. Uh, and Las Vegas, my other pick, lost in five games to Sacramento. Uh, so neither team even made its finals. But I think that just kind of shows anything can happen in a five game series. Uh, you can't but, kill the Durham Bulls. Yeah, well that too. Well, that's the funny <laughs> thing is that right now the Durham Bulls who beat. Scranton Wilkesbury in three games. They swept that series. They are currently down two nothing to the Columbus Clippers in the International League. Uh, oh, you just win. Yeah, they're just one win or one loss away from elimination. But I'm not going to say anything about it. I'm not going to say Columbus <laughs> is going to Memphis. I literally was bitten by this last week. I'm not doing it again. Um, and then over there in the PCL as well, Sacramento is currently leading Round Rock two uh, nothing. So. As things stand, by the time you hear this, this could be different. You know, Durham and Round Rock could easily win game three and things could be a little different. But uh, as things stand right now, it's looking like it's going to be Columbus in Sacramento in in AAA. Uh, One other playoffs I want to kind of point out that has been really interesting is the Texas League. Uh, We've talked up AA Arkansas a lot this year. They didn't make it to the finals. They actually lost to Tulsa 3-2 in the best of five semis. So right now, it is a 1-1 finals between Tulsa and Amarillo. Amarillo has been a good team for most of the year. They got Mackenzie Gore down the stretch. They got Luis Patino down the stretch. Gore isn't pitching in these playoffs. They've shut him down uh, after he hit his innings limit. Um, but one of the most interesting players on that team now is Taylor Trammell, uh, who came over from the Reds in that kind of mega swap at the deadline. And Taylor Trammell is coming off a rough season. You know, the regular season didn't go his way. He's, it's the first time he's ever played at double A. Uh, he was at Chattanooga before that, never had an OPS above 700 at either double A spots. Uh, but so far in the playoffs, he's looked a lot more like the Taylor Trammell we've expected to see. Uh, he's 11 for 29 in the playoffs this year. Uh, that's a 379 average through, through seven games. He's got two homers, two triples, and a double. Make that five extra base hits in seven games. Uh, seven RBIs, that's always going to work in two stolen bases. Uh, Tramiel has shown, especially in the Futures game the last couple of years, that his tool set will play. I mean, he's got a chance to have pretty good power from the left side. Uh, people believe in the hit tool. He's just young, 
You know, he was a high school pick coming out of the draft. Uh, he's been pushed fairly aggressively. Uh, it's been a challenging season for him, but we're starting to see him make those adjustments and really make the game his own at the right time for the Amarillo side poodles. So that Texas League Finals is definitely going to be something you're going to want to watch, and that's going to go, like we said, for a couple more days because it's 1-1 tied right now. Also on the Tulsa side, uh, two guys on that team to watch, Josiah Gray and Jeter Downs, both came from the Reds also. So it's kind of funny, former Reds prospects have a big piece of this Texas League Finals uh, championship series. Josiah Gray is now a top 100 prospect after the way he's climbed the ladder. Uh, he was a shortstop in, in college, moved to the mound. His stuff is really showing now with the Dodgers in his first full season. They've allowed him to climb three levels. Uh, I don't, I'm not sure. He, he started game one, was just okay. I don't know if he'll get a chance to pitch game five or not, it, should it go to that. But keep an eye out if he does come back around. And Jeter Downs has had a breakout season of his own in his first season in the Los Angeles system. He homered three times in game three, in a wild game three. I think the final score is 18 to nine, uh, which was absolutely insane. Yeah, 18 to, to nine, Tulsa. Um, so there's lots of storylines to follow here in the Texas League. They're, they're going back to Tulsa for games three, four, and five, uh, game five if necessary. If you get a chance, be sure to watch those. And I think all of them are on TV, uh, so get a chance there. Some of the champions that have been crowned since the last time we talked. Hillsborough won the Northwest League title. That's the third time Hillsborough has won uh, that league championship in the last six years, which is kind of crazy. Uh, and then in the New York Penn League, the Brooklyn Cyclones won their first championship in the club's history. That's their first outright championship. The last time they won a share was in 2001 when the playoffs were kind of canceled early. Uh, so this is that club's first uh, title ever really in the New York Penn League since they moved to Brooklyn. Uh, a couple of standouts on that. Brett Beatty, uh, first round pick, got moved up late. He helped in, in that championship run. Uh, Matthew Allen threw three perfect innings for Brooklyn in the clincher. Uh, that's really promising. Third round pick. Uh, you know, wasn't expected to sign after he missed the first round. The Mets come back around and, and scoop him up and, and make some other you know picks that allow them to to get the money to send Matthew Allen. Now he's in the system. Now he's providing results in title-winning games, which is fascinating and really speaks to uh, his potential down the line. Um, we're going to have continued playoff coverage you know, in, in the next week. We know there's only one week of this left. I think all the leagues are now officially in their finals. Um, but, yeah, be sure to tune in to the, their Find the links on the site to all of these games. We're covering each series as it goes along every night and uh, with a reaction from players, managers, all that kind of stuff. And we'll have clinching videos and uh, the fun, you know, Gatorade dumping pictures, all that fun stuff on the site at MILB.com. Strike two this week, a whole bunch of promotions across the minor leagues. Jesus Luzardo uh, has been called up to the Oakland Athletics, a, a move that we thought we could see maybe last year at some point. Um, Nico Horner has jumped up to the major league level, uh, another one of those guys who I don't think we've talked about maybe quite as much as his uh, his body of work to this point would suggest. Um, it's been, I don't want to say a quiet season by any stretch uh, for Nico Horner, but a guy who uh, has made that climb and um, gets a chance now to test himself for this last month of the uh, the major league regular season um, by getting that bump up to the big league level with the Chicago Cubs. Uh, the uh, Seattle Mariners, who have been out of contention for a little while but are trying to figure out what they've got in their next chapter um, with uh, a very exciting group of prospects um, and a really intriguing group of prospects, Justin Dunn, Kyle Lewis, both up at the major league level. Um, Sam, these call-ups right now in September. Uh, give me your reaction to these. Yeah, one thing I want to kind of just point out real quick that's funny to me is that all four of these guys, uh, Justin Dunn, Nico Horner, Jesus Suzardo, and Kyle Lewis, have been on the show before. Just a little plug there. Ah, the show before the show bump? Yeah, you can uh, go back in, in our archives and find our interviews at different points of their career. So some of them, you know, it's talking about adjusting to pro ball, and that doesn't really matter anymore now that we know that they are major leaguers, which is kind of a cool thing to point out. Um, with Luzardo, the, the A's bring him up. They are obviously in that packed AL wildcard race with the Indians and the Rays. Um, so they need all the help they can get. Luzardo can certainly help right now. He made his debut uh, the other night. Did not look overmatched whatsoever. He only gave up one hit and one run. They were both on a home run. 
but he struck out two, didn't walk any over three innings. Uh, his first strikeout, if you get a chance, watch that video. He spots a two-seamer at the low end of the zone that like seems to sneak up on the batter. Uh, really impressive stuff. It seems like he's going to have no trouble transitioning to a bullpen role after he was starting the last couple of weeks coming off of injury uh, for the AAA Las Vegas Aviators. Uh, but adding him to that mix with A.J. Puck, obviously the A's are really going for it this year, trying to m- make sure that they get one of those two wild card spots, give them a chance to get into the postseason. Uh, and Luzardo can be a weapon out of that pen with a plus fastball, with a good curveball, with a really good changeup that has been good even back to his high school days when guys don't normally need changeups. Uh, and he can throw it in the zone. Hopefully he can be healthy throughout this month. I think putting him in a bullpen role will certainly help that. It, it limits his innings a little bit, but giving him three innings last night was certainly promising. Uh, with Nico Horner, like you mentioned, Tyler, he wasn't somebody on our radar really for a September call-up. Uh, the Cubs infield, when healthy, is generally really good, and Nico Horner only played a double-A this year and dealt with his own injury issues um, and was kind of limited in that way. Unlike some of these other guys we'll mention with Justin Dunn and Kyle Lewis, he's not Rule 5 eligible. He was just taken in the 2018 draft. He's actually the first guy from the 2018 draft to reach the majors. Uh, so why bring him up? Well, you know, Addison Russell was going through the concussion protocol. Javier Baez has a hairline fracture in his hand. Uh, really disappointing stuff from an injury standpoint. So the Cubs looked at what they had, and the Cubs are kind of in a skid of their own right now. They're potentially losing out on a wild card spot. Who was the best shortstop they had in the system? They decided that that is Nico Horner. Now, what has Horner done to, to push that? He's got a plus hit tool uh, when healthy. You know, he was dealing with his own hairline fracture of his left wrist uh, this April. Started to come back around this August. Uh, he makes a ton of contact, and he showed that already in the majors. He's 4 for 11 to start his career uh, with a triple. Uh, has only struck out once in those 11 at-bats, and I think that's going to continue. He's kind of a contact-first player that usually sucks a little bit of power out of him, and nobody expects him to be a plus power hitter. He only had three homers this year in 70 games with A Tennessee. Um, but that type of elite contact making ability is something that can help him uh it he thrives on his ability to show good hand-eye coordination that's going to work some questions about whether he's going to stick at shortstop long term uh he's got a pretty good run tool he can he can cover uh ground pretty well there the arm maybe will force him to move to second he also has a little bit of experience in the outfield um, but for right now they intend to use him as a shortstop and it's kind of exciting to have a team look at their depth chart and realize, hey, this prospect we have really is the best option. Let's get him here now. It's pretty refreshing to see that happen. Uh, Justin Dunn and Kyle Lewis with the Mariners real quick. Um, like I said, they, they are Rule 5 eligible this offseason. The Mariners didn't necessarily have to add them now. Uh, they could have waited until the November deadline. But by bringing them up now, they get a look at them. They say, okay, we're trying to map out our future here this offseason. What can these guys do? Uh, for Kyle Lewis, it's really exciting to see him get up there, uh, former first-round pick uh, a couple years back, but has really struggled with knee injuries the last couple of years. Uh, he played 122 games this year. That was his first time ever playing more than 100 games in the minors. Uh, he was, like I said, the 11th overall pick in 2016. Comes up, first two games, already has two home runs. Those are his first two major league hits, in fact. And, and one of those homers actually broke up a Sonny Gray no-hitter. Uh, which was really neat to to see out of him getting legitimately a chance. Uh, now the Mariners are trying to figure out what they're going to do with their outfield. Uh, you know, Braden Bishop has come up this year. Jake Fraley has come up this year. Jared Kelnick is banging down the door, as we know, and Julio Rodriguez isn't much further behind him. Uh, what can Lewis do? This is a real major league audition for him. To see him go yard in each of his first two games is a promising start. We'll see how he can continue it as major league pitchers adjust to him. Justin Dunn is the better prospect of these two guys. Uh, he was the number five prospect in the M system. Uh, Lewis is number 10, but he had a stellar season as well this year. Double A Arkansas, 3.55 ERA, 158 strikeouts versus only 39 walks and 131 and two-thirds innings. He thrives off kind of a deeper arsenal. He can throw a fastball, slider, curve, or changeup. It's the fastball and slider that are above average pitches, and that's probably what he's going to rely on to start in the majors. 
Uh, I'm not sure if they're going to use him as a starter or as a reliever, maybe just as a reliever to get him, you know, get his feet wet a little bit, but he is a starter long-term. Uh, what is he going to be able to show to potentially win a rotation spot next spring? We'll see, but it is exciting to see him get this chance and be able to prove himself beyond just what he was doing with the Travelers. And strike three this week, there was a story that caused quite a bit of buzz uh, on minor league Twitter when you wake up to a whole bunch of notifications on the other side of the planet of people saying, oh, my God, the minor leagues are doomed. Uh, it's very confusing. But uh, 538 had a story from Travis Sawchick under the headline, are the minor leagues necessary? In which, uh, among other things, he argued, I think, some some fairly decent points about uh, maybe perhaps bloated ranks of the minor league system, um, but also uh, moving toward a, a European model of the soccer type of model of player development and uh, how player development can be streamlined uh, kind of cherry picked a stat that minor league baseball attendance had been down which was true for I think one year out of like the last decade and it's back up this year by more than a million fans um, but still an interesting story uh, and an interesting concept and it definitely got people talking which is uh, part of the reason why you write things um, you know to, to be thought provoking and all that um, but Sam your your reaction to this story the uh, and the firestorm that it caused yeah. Um, so, yeah, the, one of the interesting things is the, the headline was actually, do we even need minor league baseball? Right, right. That's it. Just such a weird headline. Because yeah, as, and it almost it, – I will say um, the, the headline seems to have been written by somebody not necessarily in line with the full frame of the article itself, of the column itself. Yes. No, that's true. And, you know, not all writers do their headlines and that's fine. It, but – uh, as Deadspin kind of pointed out, who is we in this situation? Uh, right. Because do we even need minor league baseball? Is that fans? Is that players? Is that front offices? What? How, do, how are we framing this debate to begin with? But in terms of the overall premise, um, they kind of use the Houston Astros as an example. Uh, Houston Astros for a long time now have been held up as a player development success story for the way that they have developed obviously World Series champions and continual contenders. And in recent years, the, the Astros have tried to reel in the amount of affiliates they have with the idea of giving a lot of resources to fewer affiliates. And I think there's something to be said for that, for sure. Um, but there's just so many other things involved in this kind of complicated web. And you know, one of the standout quotes to me, which was kind of, I don't know. It, it was dismissed pretty quickly. It was kind of thrown into the end of a paragraph was Mitch Hanniger. Mitch Hanniger, you might remember, was never really a top 100 prospect, uh, was really good at the end of his minor league career. And then Seattle went and got him from the Diamondbacks. Um, but he was somebody who for whom player development needed to happen. And he had this quote, you can't really simulate facing a pitcher in front of thousands of people and failing in front of a whole bunch of people. Um, you know, the idea of going from minor league baseball, which is you travel across the country, you get moved to affiliates, you climb the ladder that way, to a European soccer style, which is you know you you play for the U21s, you play for the U23s, you play for you know you're in the system really young and you develop at backfields. It's almost like the GCL and the AZL. Um, you might travel a little bit more, like if you're a Tottenham player for. You know, I'm a Tottenham fan. You might go and travel and play the Southampton U21, something like that. For baseball, it would probably only be in Florida and Arizona and do what we do now, uh, just playing on the backfields. That's not good for baseball because baseball itself is trying to grow. And the way you do that is you bring it right. across the country. You bring it to the Pioneer League. You bring it to the Appalachian League. Uh, you know, There are 30 major league markets right now. There are so many more minor league markets that – you want to get fans, you bring it to their front doorstep. Yeah. Uh, you know, we talked to Josh Jackson a bunch about playing and going to see the Portland Sea Dogs. Yeah, you could easily go to Boston, but that's a three hour trip. That's really difficult. Put it where people are. Um, they aren't just in metropolitan areas, although a lot of minor league teams are as well. But that's a whole part of this argument that doesn't get put here. Another part that I think he, he tried to make at one point that. You know, the NBA, the NHL, the NFL, uh, the other three big sports in America, guys get drafted. They get thrown into the elite league almost immediately, usually. 
Not always the case. It is the case with the NFL for sure. The NBA has the D League, uh, or it could be the European style where you send them to Europe for a couple of years. The NHL has the AHL. It's not perfect, but baseball doesn't do that. Why doesn't baseball do that? We're seeing guys like Fernando Tatis Jr. jump right up from Double A. Chris Paddock uh, had limited experience. He's been doing pretty well this year. And then they use the examples of somebody like Casey Mize or Walker Buehler, and they talk to them about like, hey, we need to fail. We need bigger challenges. That's great. But Casey Mize and Walker Buehler came from big college programs. Right. They had their failures in front of big stadiums before getting drafted. And then you send them to Erie or Oklahoma City or Tulsa, where those guys have gone, and they do better because they've already been in those scenarios so they th- sit around and think like oh why you know i need a bigger challenge that's great what about some of these guys who get drafted out of high school um yeah the minor league success rate is fairly low but we don't know what they're going to be until we put them in these scenarios putting them on the backfields in front of no fans in front of no second decks in front of no decks to begin with isn't helping them develop into major league talent um, never mind just the entertainment factor, taking it out of people's backyards and, and that kind of thing, and how baseball itself needs minor league baseball to build up the popularity of the sport. Uh, there are players who need this. Mariano Rivera came into baseball, ended it as the, an elite closer. <clears throat> Originally, was not that he needed that development time to even become a major leaguer, and then famously, obviously, you know, moved to the bullpen and developed a cutter and did all that kind of stuff. That stuff takes time. And limiting the amount of affiliates limits the amount of time for somebody like Mariano Rivera. Not just him. Ronald Acuna was a breakout prospect. Mike Piazza was famously a late, late round pick. Um, Limiting affiliates and just saying like, hey, okay, we're only going to go with this select few, but we're going to pour in development dollars to that. It not only hurts players, but it just hurts teams and the chances that breakout guys can happen. We've seen it happen. It might be a small percentage. It might be five guys a year. But still, those five guys a year become superstars that drive the game, and we, and we need that. Um, so, yeah, it, it might not seem like the game needs uh, so many affiliates, and maybe we see a slight trimming, especially on you know the GCL side. Maybe teams don't need two GCL teams, or they don't need two DSL teams. Maybe we see a trimming there. But in terms of the general minor leagues, this is where you build the game, not only for you know players, like we said, but also fans. Uh, and I would hate to see that be lost in any type of manner. Yeah, I think it was kind of a laughable concept, but it got people talking. And, uh, you know, it's one of the big things. Also, oh, go ahead. No, you go. No, I was just going to say, J.J. Cooper of Baseball America had a really good thread in which he talked about, um, you know, some of the arguments that are put forth by it and uh, the the proposal that, you know, baseball back in the the 1970s and 80s, when there were fewer teams, it was so much healthier with the minor leagues, blah, blah, blah. Um, That was back in the day when minor league baseball, most minor league teams, as he put it, were just struggling to keep the lights on. And in this boom era of minor league baseball, the teams that have largely been added have been complex level teams, which add basically zero cost for the major league affiliates. So there is very little risk for them to do that. It's just a lot that their minor league baseball is not going away. And, and yes, maybe there will be more of a, a trimming and a streamlining of things, but there were a lot of people who got, I think kind of spooked by it. And minor league baseball is extraordinarily healthy and, uh, and 40 plus million people went through the gates this year. And it's, uh, it's going to be around for a good long time. Yeah, that, that was the one funny thing about the story as well. As you mentioned before, the attendance numbers, it, it notes that in 2018, attendance went down a little bit. But then quickly after that story came out was that attendance bounced back uh, this year. It was up more than a million. It was the biggest year-to-year growth since 2006 to 2007. Uh, in terms of the business of minor league baseball, uh, that is very healthy. And that just kind of took that part of the argument right off it and Um, You know, people are still coming to games. People are enjoying coming to games, as we hear from you guys all the time, uh, which is great for, uh, you know, not just minor leagues and all that, but the sport in general. Um, And, you know, I, I, I don't think this is the time to think about, hey, maybe we should start stripping some of that away. Yeah, so sorry about it. Uh, That'll do it for this week's episode. Uh, Three strikes on this week's episode of the show before the show.
Speaking to the show before the show, the minor league baseball podcast, after what's been a whirlwind week so far for him uh, as number four Mets prospect, Matthew Allen. Matt, thanks so much for joining us. Uh, just kind of take us through this week where you are right now. I know you, you got to go to City Field yesterday. Uh, we talked about it in a previous segment on this show that you helped lead Bro Brooklyn to a New York Penn League title. Uh, what has this week been like for you? Uh, no, I mean, it's been nothing short of just uh, special and incredible. You know, I'm still kind of off. Uh, I'm still kind of coming off a high uh, with the with the championship, and then you know, getting the getting the news that we get to go to City Field and. Um, you know, kind of coming from the GCL, I think it meant a little bit more as well because, you know, I got the experience in the GCL to kind of talk and, you know, kind of uh, kind of hang out with uh, like a, a guy like Brandon Nimmo and, you know, in Brooklyn, you know, I'm fortunate enough to see like Robinson Cano and Jed Lowry, you know, those guys. So I think it's kind of special seeing them in a big league ballpark and actually seeing them you know, kind of, you know, doing their craft and doing their thing. It's special when you've already had a one-on-one -on -one conversation with them. So I know that meant a lot. You know, I saw, I saw Brandon, you know, I saw Nimmo uh, when I got to the field and, you know, we talked and so it was, it was, it was pretty surreal, but yeah, I'm just still coming off, uh, still coming off and high for the, for the championship, especially for my first year and, you know, no better place than in, you know, in New York. Um, and so, yeah, it's uh, it was nothing short of incredible. And and let's go through your game three appearance there. You're going up against Lowell. It's a best of three series, so it's winner take all. You're playing in Coney Island in Brooklyn, so not very far from City Field itself, obviously. You get the ball. You throw three perfect innings. Um, what was that experience like? What were you thinking going into that game, knowing you know every pitch is a potential title decider? Yeah, for sure. You know, honestly, I just wanted to do, do the best I can to put up zeros, whatever that meant. Just to, just to, you know, when I came in, it was, uh, I believe it was two to two. And so, uh, you know, just going in, uh, you know, I kind of looked at the scouting reports, looked at the guys that they had. And, you know, just the biggest thing that I kind of learned from being there is just learn to trust my stuff. Um, and so going in, I just want to put up zeros for my team and just to keep, you know, keep the game going and pat, like, you know, as they say, pass the torch, pass it to the next guy. And so, um, you know, I was, I was really happy because I actually got, you know, I got to go out for a third inning, you know, I've been kind of capped at two innings, but you know, I had a, I had a low pitch count. So, you know, Matos was like, Hey, want to go out for a third inning? I was like, yeah, let's do it. And so, uh, you know, it was, it was, it was awesome. And I was, you know, just really happy that, you know, I could, you know, pass the torch and just do the best I can to help my team win because we, you know, we were fighting, you know, we were fighting from the beginning and, uh, you know, Lowell's a good team. That's why they were, you know, that's why they were in that situation. And so, you know, I was just really happy that we ended up pulling out the, pulling out the win. And so, yeah. Yeah. And what kind of experiences are you pulling on in a moment like that? Cause you just turned 18, you know, back in April and you're already pitching for a professional championship. It's a low level, but still it's, a, it's, you're giving Brooklyn its first outright championship. What were you thinking about, like, leaning on experience-wise, or was it just knowing the scouting reports of the Lowell players? I mean, how were you kind of mentally able to get in there? Uh, mentally, I think the biggest thing for me was, uh, you know, I, you know, Garrison Bryant, he was, he, was a real, he was a real contributing factor, you know, I think, to having success that night and the outing before. And just honestly, being in Brooklyn, you know, he kind of just taught me a lot of trusting your stuff. You just got to trust your stuff. You got to act like you belong here. You got to know that you belong here. You can't feel like an outcast. You can't feel like all oh, these guys are older than me. They went to SEC schools, Kentucky, this, that, and the other. You, you can't think like that. You got to all think, look, we're all professionals and, and I belong in this situation. I belong in this, on this team. And, you know, honestly, I just, uh, I think after my first outing, I really learned a lot. I learned a lot about the the league. I learned a lot just about pitching and myself, strength and we strengths and weaknesses. And you know, it's definitely a different animal coming from uh, the GCO. But I, I learned a lot from my first outing, and that definitely helped build confidence. And uh, you know, for my next two outings, and especially especially in that uh, three inning stint, you know, I just you know, I just told myself, you know, you got to trust your stuff. Even if you're behind in the count, you know, two O change ups, two one curve balls, that kind of, hit. you got to know you're going to hit your spot. Um, you know, you can't think where this guy went, what this guy did, you know, all, you know, all this guy's attributes, you just got to, you know, believe in yourself and have that, you know, just inner confidence that you're, you're going to be successful. So that's, that's kind of how I approached it. Hmm. And, and just to give people a background on that, uh, your first outing, you gave up two runs on five hits in the first two innings. Then you come in for the postseason, your first postseason appearance, two hitless innings. 
and then the next one, three perfect innings. Uh, so it seems like he got over the hump there. But just going back to that jump from the GCL, uh, GCL, the rest of the season got canceled early. There were no playoffs or anything like that. And then the Mets come to you and say, hey, we're going to send you up to Brooklyn, not even to Kingsport. Uh, you know, we're going to skip you right to Class A short season. What was that conversation like, and what instructions did they give you about jumping you straight into an affiliate like that? Um, I mean, it was it was pretty surreal. I was I was really excited. You know, I kind of, uh, you know, I didn't I didn't honestly know at first. It was pretty last minute. But Davi, the head coach in the in the GCO, the manager, um, was just you know we were in the hotel and they, he was kind of explaining you know what's going to happen. You know the you know the hurricane. You know we're leaving. Season's over. That kind of thing. Pulled me to the side and just said, Hey, look. If Kingsport wins tonight, you're going to Kingsport. If Kingsport loses, you're going to go to Brooklyn. And I was like, Brooklyn, wow. Uh, <laughs> all right, you know, all right, let's do this. Um, Kingsport ended up losing. And so, you know, I was like, all right, you know, I'm uh, like, we're going to go to Brooklyn. This is actually happening. And, you know, I think uh, the basically the only, you know, instructions, I, I didn't really have any instructions. It was just, you're going to, you're going to go to Aberdeen. Um, you know, they were playing the, they were playing the Ironbirds, the, the Orioles affiliate, you know, I showed up there and, you know, kind of, you know, got dressed and kind of talked to a couple of the guys, but still, you know, it was a little different obviously, cause I just, I pulled up maybe an hour before the game. And so I still, you know, I still wanted to play catch and kind of go through my normal routine because they told me I was pitching on Saturday. I, I got there on Thursday and they're like, Hey, you got two innings on Saturday at home. Um, and they said, it's going to be busy. It's going to be packed. And I was like, Oh, lovely. Um, <laughs> and so, uh, and so, uh, you know, it was, it was pretty surreal walking into an actual stadium. Like, even though it was before the game, there was still, you know, still a decent amount of fans there. And, um, you know, just being around the guys. And, you know, also I think it was pretty huge that, you know, Be uh, Brett Beatty, you know, he was also promoted. And so, you know, him and I, we, we basically did everything together. We got breakfast together every morning. We had, you know, the locker room conversation, the dugout conversation, that kind of thing. I think him and I, we kind of just fed off of each other and the experiences that we're seeing, you know, cause he's, you know, it's, he's obviously an incredible hitter. And so I want to learn as much as I can for what he's seeing. And, you know, we kind of just talk back and forth about, Oh, you know, this is that about hitting, pitching, all that kind of stuff. And so I think all that, all together kind of prepared me for my first outing and then throwing that, you know, first outing, it was definitely a little frustrating because, um, you know, I felt in certain counts, I made good pitches and there was soft contact, but you know, that's just part of the game. You know, you just got to kind of deal with that and you got to deal with uh, the frustrations that come with it. And so I was, you know, I was, I was okay with that. Um, but the biggest thing for me was I just, I really learned from it. I learned, just uh, like I said about the league, about the hitters, the aggressiveness, and just the kind of, you know, these obviously they're smarter hitters. As you get better and better, um, you can't make as many mistakes. And so that, you know, that was definitely something that I saw um, and right from the get-go, my first outing, that the the, the mistakes are just going to keep getting hit harder and farther and all that kind of thing. And so trying to minimize that, um, you know, is the kind of the biggest thing that I figured out and just trusting my stuff, hitting my spots, trusting my catcher, you know, all those kind of things. Hmm. And between these last two weeks, I think you only pitched at MCU Park, so you got to know what that place is like pretty well, pitching deep in Brooklyn on Coney Island. You go to City Field yesterday, get to you know be feeded by the Mets as, as a title winner. Um, what has kind of been your New York City experience so far? Because being drafted by the Mets, that is your dream to, to make a home here and live here. Um, so what, is, what has it been like just these whirlwind two weeks of being in New York City like this? No, for sure. I mean, it, it was a whirlwind, but it was it was surreal. It was it was awesome, and um, you know, I, I went to when I got drafted, went to City Field. I got to watch Degrom versus Soroka, um, and that was incredible. And it was also the 60th anniversary uh, weekend, and so it was packed. And just being there for the you know the close moments and, and hearing the crowd and all that kind of stuff, it got me really excited. You know, it's that kind of taste that they tell you. You know, it's that taste that you feel like all right, you know, we want to show you where you want to be, but you got to work hard for it, obviously. And so then being in Brooklyn, experiencing what it's like to, you know, the, the routine is different in Brooklyn and in a, you know, a short season as, and, and even a, in a full season as it's different than in the GCL, you know, in the GCL, you're six, seven in the morning, you know, practice game, you know, that kind of thing. And, you know, going from that, 
learning all that I can learn there, you know, feeding off of everybody that I can there. And then, you know, kind of coming to Brooklyn, it's a, it's a bit different. You know, you, you're more kind of individualized. You are a little bit more on your own and, and, you know, it's, it's even different that, you know, like I, I, you know, you don't have to wake up as early, you know, I kind of had to, uh, you know, tool with that a little bit, having to get breakfast in the morning, because if the van doesn't come till two o'clock, that's different. You know, I'm used to leaving and going at, you know, 7 a.m. in GCL, um, but just, you know, pitching in Brooklyn and in the nights that I pitched and I was fortunate enough that each game was, uh, uh, each game was important. You know, it was a playoff game or it was busy, you know, that kind of thing. And so I got to taste that environment, taste the crowd, taste the energy, all that kind of thing. And then just going back to city and being able to see it again, firsthand, feel it, you know, I was outside, you know, so each time, you know, Matt struck a guy out or, you know, guy, he got out of a base and loaded jam, you know, you could just feel that energy. And so it's like, yeah, this is definitely, this is, this is where I want to be. Mm. And, Let's talk about you as a pitcher and your adjustment to the pros. Uh, for people who are unaware of your game, you throw a pretty good fastball hitting the high 90s at times, and you got a plus curveball and a plus change and with some good control. But what do you feel like allowed you to make the transition, at least stuff-wise, uh, pretty well this summer between the GCL and Brooklyn? Uh, definitely getting definitely getting ahead of hitters. You know, getting ahead of hitters just builds that confidence. Um, you know, you're... You know, when you get ahead of hitters, you don't, you know, you're, you feel the need, you know, you feel like the, the phrase you can make a, a mistake is, um, I don't love that phrase, but you know, when you're behind and you definitely in the GCL, they preach. So you got to get ahead of hitters, got to get ahead of hitters. And that was, I think key for me in Brooklyn was getting ahead of hitters because then that allowed me to work the corners that allowed me to expand the zone for the hitter that allowed me to do all that. And so I think, um, you know, that, and just, you know, like I said, just feeling like, you know, I belong there and trusting my stuff, really trusting that a two Oh change up that I can execute that, that I don't have to baby it, that I can, you know, throw it as if I was going to do it as a punch out, you know, as a punch out or something like that. Um, but definitely in the GCL it was really helpful because, you know, in high school, you can make more mistakes. You can leave the ball over the middle of the play more. You can get behind the count more and still strike the guy out. When you get to the GCL, you know, it's a little harder. The the hitters are a little better. When you get to Brooklyn, the hitters are a little better. And, you know, as you keep going up, you the, the less mistakes you can make um, and the more consistent you need to be. And so uh, I think kind of already understanding that, but definitely the foundation started in the GCL of, you know, the Ariel Prieto preaching first pitch strikes, being able to, you know, execute in the bullpen, you know, all that kind of stuff, taking all your throws serious, uh, taking your bullpen serious, not just doing it go, to go through the motions. That definitely kind of uh, was the the building blocks to having, you know, success in Brooklyn facing better hitters and feeling confident about it. You know, I belong there. Mm. And so we talked a little bit about your pro career so far. Let's talk about what got you there. Uh, you were one of the most interesting draft stories going into the draft this year. Let's tr step even further back a little bit, because um, I don't think you were necessarily a big name on the board before you were a senior. Uh, you know, some places mm -hmm. right up that you weren't a big name at summer showcases and stuff like that. When did you feel like you were a high round pick and that you were getting more attention? Um. You know, I think for me, you know, school was always a school and it still is, you know, it's still very important to my family and I, and it was always a priority for me that, um, you know, education is just, you know, everybody's gone to school in my family. And so being the first not to go to college is definitely a, a different for my family and I. Um, but I think, you know, over the off season, I, I took a step of, I, I didn't actually go to a real school. I did Florida virtual school that kind of expanded my schedule that kind of taught me honestly a lot of stuff about time management um you know being you know doing things on your own not having you know teachers down your throat got to do this got to do that you know that kind of taught me a lot and then also gave me time to focus on my craft for baseball workouts you know I hit the offseason really hard I spent a lot of time focusing on pitching focusing on the movement movements that I needed to do to be successful and stay healthy um you know I think early early spring, you know, I, I was, you know, my velocity was up, my, you know, I, I had still had good control of my pitches. Um, you know, I, I was throwing for strikes, that kind of thing. And, you know, I think at that point I was thinking, you know, this is really a possibility, but, you know, for me, I was just wanted to stay less level headed as I could and understand that anything could happen. And honestly, it, you know, it did happen, the, the freak scenario, all that kind of stuff. But, you know, I, I felt like I was really well prepared for that. 
Um, so, yeah. Yeah, and, and as you mentioned education and how important that was to your family and to you, and everybody pretty well knew that you had a strong commitment to the University of Florida and it was going to take something to get away from there. Um, was that something you were communicating to teams? I mean, how, how does that process work where everybody knows that, hey, he's probably going to college, so we should probably stay away unless we can really talk him into it? Um, you know, when you meet with teams, they, you know, they, they try to get a feel for you. They try to get a feel for, uh, you know, the environment that you live in, the environment you surround yourself uh, with, uh, uh, the people you're around, the things you like to do. And, um, you know, I think for them understanding that I, I, you know, I do virtual school and I take it really serious and, you know, I, I like to finish my classes early. I like to get it all done, kind of hearing that and then hearing, um, like at Florida, I was planning on studying applied kinesiology and phys physiology. You know, I feel like that's that's really intriguing, especially understanding pitching and how the body moves. And so I think them kind of understanding that, and then um, you know, like I said, my parents are my parents. Uh, you know, both went to school. My dad's got you know, guys masters in finance, and you know, I think them kind of hearing that and just kind of just being around my family, they understood that education was a big thing and, and meant a lot. So. And at what point did you know the Mets were interested in potentially taking you anywhere, not in, not just the third round, but anywhere on the board and, and trying to talk you out of that UF commitment? Um, you know, I saw John Updike at a, at a lot of my games, um, and, and uh, I saw – uh, I saw a couple, you know, different kind of higher up scouts at, you know, different, you know, a couple of my games. And, uh, you know, I think at that point I was thinking, you know, you know they're definitely a, they're definitely a contender. Um, yeah, I think so. Yeah. So it, um, at what point for draft day, you know, that first round comes and people gather around and the first round, second round is the same night. Were you watching it all expecting to hear your name? Were you waiting until day two? I mean, what was your draft day experience like? Uh, it was it was different, you know. Like I said, I I, uh, I was definitely well prepared. You know, Boris for you know they prepared me really well to understand that anything could happen, and you got to be prepared for that. That any freak scenario could happen. You you very well need to be ready to go to college and and feel proud about that and and accept that and you know feel confident about it. And so I was fully prepared going into that night, knowing that. I could go out, go to the University of Florida, and I was very happy with that. Um, it was it was a weird night. It was definitely a weird night. Not, you know, the the whole day kind of hearing chatter about this, that, and the other, and you know, kind of hearing all the buzz. That's that's definitely a big thing. Is you know, painted. You know, I I was a sucker for the buzz and uh, <laughs> social media and that kind of thing. And you know, kind of hearing, you know, should go this round, or, you know, should go this pick, this pick. Not having it happen definitely was uh, frustrating. But I think that's kind of. I think that's kind of the foundation that I want to take and run with that, you know, for if I, if I could have a story for like anybody or tell any, you know, kid growing up or anything like that, if they want to play baseball, I think I could be a, a good person to talk to you about that. Cause you know, going into that night, I, I for sure thought that, you know, first round was a possibility, you know, top whatever picks. And I was like, you know, that, that definitely could happen, but you know, it didn't happen. And it, it, it was, you know, frustrating, but you know, kind of all came all worked out in the end. So. Yeah, and when the Mets do call your name in the third round, it's pretty well accepted now that anybody taking the top 10 rounds is going to sign. Obviously, there are some uh, ex exceptions to that. Uh, but did you pretty well know that when they called your name that you were going to sign, or did you think the signing process was still going to be long and uh, you know, a, a long process itself? No, the long, uh, the sign process was still going to be long. You know, I was waiting for every, you know, four through 10 to sign. I was waiting for Brett to sign and for Josh Wolf to sign. And then, um, you know, for, you know, rounds four through 10, I was waiting for, uh, those picks to sign. So it's, I mean, I think it took about a month for the whole thing to unfold and for, you know, for my first day in the GCL, but it was, it was definitely a long process, but I, I think it was, uh, it was good because I got to, you know, spend a little bit more time at home, you know, kind of be with family, do that kind of thing. And then also, uh, I think it really just, you know, kept me hungry and wanted me to, you know, I really wanted to go out and play. And, you know, every day I was like, oh, I want to, I wish I could be there. I wish I could, you know, be playing and pitching and that kind of thing. And so I think once I got there, I was really well prepared because I, you know, I've been waiting. Hmm. And what was your welcome to the pros moment starting out in the GCL? You know, you talked a little bit about that experience, but that first moment where you realized, whoa, this is my job. And this is something I, as a pitcher, you're going to do it every fifth or sixth day, but every day you get to come to the baseball field. What was that welcome moment for you? 
It was, uh, you know, it was awesome. It's you know, everything I've ever wanted to do in life. And I, you know, I think I really understood that after probably the first week realizing that you, you know, you're coming to the park every day and you're coming to work, you know, the, you know, it's hot, you're going to be tired, you know, all those, all those things that, you know, everybody could complain about and say they don't like, you know, those were all reasons why I enjoyed it. And I felt, you know, I was prepared for it, but, uh, you know, I think I realized at that point that this is my job and I got to treat it like my job. I can't take it as, you know, I'm just going to take this day off because I don't feel like it, or I'm just going to, you know, do this because I don't feel like it. You know, that's, you know, that, and at least in my book, you know, it's not acceptable. I'm, you know, one wanting to show up every day to the field with a game plan and, you know, wanting to get better and wanting to learn and that kind of thing. So I think, you know, kind of being at the games every day, doing, you know, throwing every day, conditioning every day, lifting, doing all that kind of thing, understanding this is, you know, the foundation and this is, you know, this is a, a start of a, a, a new path and career. So. Mm. And when you go into this off season, cause this is the first time you've ever had an off season. Normally you're taking your classes now and, and working on other things, but now you're working towards spring again. Um, what are you going to learn from this season in terms of a foundation and put it into your off season work uh, to become maybe a little bit more of a complete pitcher by the time you report to your first spring training uh, here in a couple months? Uh, definitely, you know, I learned a lot about myself and strengths and weaknesses. Um, you know, learned a lot about minor league baseball and the importance of uh, points of pinning your spots, importance of throwing strikes, importance of trusting your stuff, and um, you know, having quality stuff and that kind of thing. Uh, I think also, you know, learning a lot about my body. Um, you know, I like to say that I, I know my body pretty well. You know, I, I know my arm pretty well. I know, you know, what works best for me for the recovery, you know, recovery rate and you know, that kind of thing, you know, what, you know, necessarily doesn't work for me, but I think this, you know, being and playing every day and lifting and doing all those things on a weekly basis and, you know, being high and, you know, all those, all those kind of things. I think I learned a lot about what it's going to be like next season because, you know, the goal is to hopefully make a, a full season team. And so uh, just learning a lot about my body and, you know, what it takes to, what it takes to be ready and to not be overly prepared so that I'm tired, you know, by the end of spring training, but not be, you know, not be, uh, not prepared enough that, you know, when I show up, I'm, you know, not ready to execute and, you know, that kind of thing. And so Matt, we'll end on this one. Um, you were born in California, according to your, your bio on your MILB.com page. Uh, you are from Florida. What did you know about the Mets, the Mets fan base, and what have you learned about the organization and just everything around it uh, here now that you're officially a New York Met? Um, I think originally, you know, because I moved when I was pretty young, so originally I didn't know that much. When I started to do more research, I knew that the obviously I knew the I knew the facility was in Florida. Um, you know, I started to learn more about the affiliates and you know what that actually meant. Um, I I knew that the fans just I mean just being a New York fan base, I knew that they were passionate about their baseball. But I think I firsthand experienced that when I went to City. Um, and so I think I, you know, I knew that from the beginning, but I think I fully started to grasp it once I got there and I was in the environment. Um, and you know, they, uh, I saw something by Pete Alonzo and it said, you know, it's easy to be a Yankee fan. And I think that's, that's, I think that's really, I think that speaks, you know, volumes for, for the Mets because, you know, obviously they have a, you know, they have a really good team and, you know, you talk to any of them, they've had some frustrating moments. You all know, talked to them about it. It's had some frustrating moments, but you know, it's easy to be a Yankee fan, but you know, the, the, they're, they're, uh, they stay to, they stay true to themselves, you know, the fans and they stay true to the, to the Mets organization. And so, yeah, I think that's uh, kind of what I've learned. Yeah. And I think a lot of Mets fans are happy to have you part of the organization and uh, obviously off on the right foot here with the New York Penn league championship with the Brooklyn Cyclones. Uh, Matt Allen, thank <laughs> yeah, for you. sure. Thank you so much for joining us and taking the time and uh, enjoy the, the start of the off season and uh, good luck the rest of the way, wherever it takes you in the Mets system. Yeah, no, for sure. I appreciate it. Thank you. And joining us back as always on the Meyer League Baseball Podcast the show before the show this week is Ben Hill. Ben, how are you doing? Doing well, yeah. Back as always. Back as always. I don't know. I'm not as good as transitions as uh, as Tyler is, but we're here this week to talk about Hagerstown. We talked a little bit about your trips in the past um, when you went to Potomac and Hagerstown. Now you've got two stories up on the Hagerstown Suns. We'll start on this on the road story. Um, you're talking about the team's team spirit, the Suns fan club. Uh, they kind of work with players and celebrate team history, including the. 
history as the Hagerstown Packets. Uh, what can you tell us about this story? Yeah, well, you know, I, I finished my uh, 2019 on-the-road season, my 2019 travel campaign uh, in Potomac and Hagerstown at the very end of the season. Uh, we talked about uh, Potomac and the Fitz and how that, that team is moving to Fredericksburg. Uh, but after I went to the Fitz, I went to Hagerstown, a municipal stadium, hadn't been there for, I believe, eight years, uh, built in 1930. Um, so obviously, operationally, it's a pretty difficult uh, place to operate out of for a 2019 uh, Class A South Atlantic team. They're a uh, Washington Nationals affiliate. And uh, so when I'm at ballparks like that, um, you know, where there's a lot of history and where attendance might be struggling and where operationally it's difficult because you're in such an old ballpark, um, I think in that, there's that famous Mr. Rogers quote that always gets, you know, paraphrased to some extent, but, you know, look for the helpers, mm -hmm. you know, and in, in, in when something is bad, when something bad is going on, look for the helpers. And I feel like when you're an old minor league stadium, it's like, look for the real fans. Because in places where a lot of people write off and say, oh, why would you go to that old dump? Of course you go to an old dump. It's a, it's a, it's a historic ballpark built in 1930, and you're always going to find, um, I think, some of the most endearing fans because they're the people who really commit to the game of baseball and to that team, not just, oh, there's a concourse and I can walk around and my kids can run on the berm and there's a big scoreboard. I'm not against those things. But I think there's something to be said for the fan culture that exists in these old ballparks where uh, a lot of tenants of the modern day yeah, minor league experience are not there. So the Hagerstown Suns have a fan club. You know, the Hagerstown Suns fan club. That's what it's called. Um, Very simple and to the point. Yeah, so I talked to the president of the fan club, a woman named Judy Baker, a retired fifth and sixth grade teacher. And, you know, she was just telling me about some of the things that teams do. And it's, again, like, to me, very endearing and grassroots. Um, you know, throughout the season, they... Um, you know, when players break bats during games, they'll collect the bats, glue them back together, have the player who broke the bat, you know, whose bat it was, sign it, and then they'll have bat raffles and bat auctions. And then, you know, the modest money they get from that goes to things like, you know, providing meals for the players. Um, you know, Judy said that, you know, throughout the off-season, off she'll look for um, sales on, on men's uh, warm-weather clothes, and she will collect clothes uh, specifically for the Hispanic players because when they get to Hagerstown in... Mm early April, you know, coming themselves, uh, young guys who might not have much experience in the United States at all, uh, might not have experience with living in a place like, uh, you know, Southern Maryland in uh, April and May when it can still be chilly and it can even snow in April. So that kind of thing, so, you know, raffling off broken game used bats to buy things such as warm weather clothes for the Hispanic players. I like that kind of grassroots thing that goes on in these small market clubs. And uh, one of the things that the fan club does every year is they sponsor a, uh, a theme jersey that the Suns wear throughout the year. And it might be anniversary related uh, in terms of, you know, the Suns franchise itself or how long they've had an affiliate or celebrating team history. And uh, the, the fan club, they fund these jerseys by, you know, it's like a, a self-perpetuating thing. At the end of the season, they will auction off that year's fan club jerseys, and then the proceeds fund the next year's fan club jerseys. And this year's fan club jerseys, uh, they were red, you know, red, white, and blue H uh, over a red base, uh, but they commemorated, and they had a patch on the sleeves to commemorate this, the Hagerstown Packets, which I thought was a, a cool bit of history, a Piedmont League team from 1954 to 1955, uh, the name was a reference to the C-82 Packet military, military Transport Plane, which was manufactured in Hagerstown by the Fairchild Engine and Airplane Corporation, you know, which was the city's largest employer at the time. So just you know, the things you learn when you visit mm -hmm. minor league baseball uh, stadiums at Hagerstown once uh, manufactured military transport team uh, uh, planes, and uh, one of the planes was called a nicknamed the Packet, and there was a minor league team called the Packets. And here we are in the year 2019 with the fan club sponsoring jerseys, um, celebrating those 1954-1955 Packets. And it, I found this, I keep using the word endearing, but I did find Hagerstown to be quite endearing. Um, at the end of the game that I was at on a Sunday, or Saturday of Labor Day weekend, uh, they auctioned off the jerseys on the field and, you know, usually there might be a silent jersey auction in-game. A lot of teams are now, you know, taking it to another level with the live source app so you can bid on jerseys, you know, away from the ballpark. Uh, in Hagerstown, again, a uh, pretty grassroots operation. The players, who probably grumbled in the clubhouse before they came back out, you know, literally just stood on the field as these jerseys were auctioned off individually by the team's PA announcer. And the fans stat, uh, sat on the bleachers down the first base side 
and participate in a live auction uh, for these jerseys. It was a real small town moment, and uh, there you have it. And they raised thirty nine hundred dollars by doing that. Yeah, thirty nine hundred, and that'll support uh, that'll go towards next year's theme jerseys. Yeah, that's no small amount. Uh, sticking in Hagerstown, you also have a story that went up today, as of re- recording this on Thursday, so people can find it on the site then. Uh, on Tony DeBurra? Tony DeBurra, yep. yeah. Sons co-owner, but he does so many other things than just be part of the ownership group. What are some of those things he brings? To yeah, sports? an interesting guy. You know, this was when I was at uh, Hagerstown on a Saturday night, and um, you know, I probably talked about the press box, but it's a spiral staircase, which I later learned was manufactured in Hagerstown, and there's only like one of two spiral staircase companies in the U.S. is are in Hagerstown. That's, okay. what I, that's what I was well, told. We'll have to look into that. Yeah. But anyway, I, I know would, of a third. Email us at podcast.mlb.com. Please. And if you have any just knowledge of uh, spiral staircases in general, I'd love to know. Um, so I was going up the kind of treacherous but very enjoyable uh, spiral staircase to get to the rooftop press box, and a man is coming down. So I kind of have to go back down to make way for him. And he's like, hey, are you Ben? And I'm like, yeah. He's like, oh, yeah, I heard you were coming. I'm Tony. I'm the team's co-owner. And I'm just like, you know, saying hi, you know, just kind of shooting the breeze for a minute or two. And then he starts saying, like, well, you know, I'm a co-owner, but, you know, people around here know me as shag because what I do is I shag balls uh, during batting practice, and I've been doing that, you know, for years. And I'm like, okay, you want to just, like, actually uh, do an interview here because I'm, <laughs> I'm always looking for those kind of stories. Um, so a really interesting guy, um, you know, born in Hagerstown, and then his family moved to El Salvador when he was a child in the 60s. Um, because his father was an entrepreneur, uh, they, his family did a, had a lot of uh, entrepreneurial efforts out in El Salvador during his childhood, including opening the first overseas Hardee's location. Uh, but he was a big baseball fan in El Salvador, played on the 18 and under national team, went to college at John, went back to the U.S. to attend college, played col- uh, college ball there. Um, you know, was very involved in engineering and computer science, eventually uh, returned to Hagerstown to join his family's businesses in Hagerstown because they, too, uh, came back from El Salvador once the political situation became uh, untenable to running things like uh, the first overseas Hardee's, I presume. <laughs> um, so really interesting guy. And uh, he said, you know, so he got to know Kurt Landis, who was then the Suns general manager and who for years he's been the only uh, general manager team president the Iron the Lehigh Valley Iron Pigs have ever had. But Kurt Landis came to uh, Lehigh Valley from the Suns, from Hagerstown. And so he and Tony DeBurro knew each other uh, in the early 21st century um, in Hagerstown, uh, you know, through the Rotary Club and community-minded things. And Tony one day is talking to Chris and says, or to Kurt, and he says, you know, I had a dream last night that uh, I was shagging balls at Municipal Stadium all, you know, for the Suns. And I realized that was the key to my happiness. So Kurt Landis, the GM at the time, hired him to be the team shagger. You know, literally hired him because he said, I don't know if we can do this in a volunteer capacity because there might be liability issues. Mm. So, you know, he's a local businessman, uh, you know, interesting background. Now he's the Hagerstown son's shagger. And then uh, some years pass and he, Mandalay Baseball is looking to sell the sons. And he ends up, uh, he's a minority owner. Uh, a man named Bruce Quinn is the majority owner, but he helped put together the group that bought the Suns from Mandalay Baseball. So now he's the team shagger slash co-owner. And uh, then as we're talking further, he mentions the fact that he's really into making minor league baseball schedules, and he does so for Johns Hopkins. And I'm like, wait a second. I did a whole story on you and the fact that you work with John Hopkins students to make you know optimized computer-generated, supercomputer-generated schedules. And so this is the same guy. So anyway, my story is about Tony DeBurra, uh, Hagerstown by way of El Salvador, um, long, long-time baseball fan, Hagerstown Suns co-owner and uh, on-field shagger for the last 16 years, and also a, um, you know, an executive director at uh, John Hopkins Security, you know, Computer Science Security Institute, something along those lines, uh, who makes... Uh, along with his students and along with uh, computer science and applied mathematics faculty members at Johns Hopkins, makes many of the minor league schedules that affect all of our lives in one way or another uh, you know, through uh, combinatorial optimization, I believe it's called. But you know, So this is just one of those things. I ran into a dude on a spiral staircase, and then I got this story out of it. So here we are. And um, that does it for my you know, kind of official on-the-road features of 2019. Still got some designated eater stuff and... Uh, a lot of kind of odds and ends that I'll uh, sprinkle through 
uh, you, know, you know, throughout the month of October. Um, so I'm not totally done, but this, I'm officially done now with the recurring features, uh, on-the-road features. And uh, hey, it's the off-season. And uh, when we talk next week, all the games will have all concluded. Playoffs, yeah. AAA National Championship. Next week, it'll truly be the off-season. Mm. But then I'm going to El Paso for the Innovator Summit. Never ends. Industry events. Okay. And uh, I think everybody just got kind of a look behind the curtain of what the Ben's Biz uh, process is at when you're at a stadium and how you get your interviews and all that kind of stuff. Yeah, just, just go hang out at spiral staircases. That's it. It really does. You know, there might not always be a spiral staircase. I wish there was, but it really. You know, people are always like, "Oh, where are you sitting?" Or I'll meet up with you later at your seats, and I'm like, "Bro, I'm never sitting. <laughs> I might not be moving very fast. In fact, I have a reputation within this very office for walking very slowly around the office, but I." I think that helps me get a lot of the stories I've gotten is just slowly walking around. And I've been doing it long enough. You know, I'm certainly not a celebrity, although some of our coworkers would disagree that they believe I have celebrity status. But I've been doing this long enough that people do know me or recognize me within the baseball, minor league baseball world. And so I feel if I keep moving and keep staying active, um, I might run into something or someone might recognize me and start talking and you just never know where things lead. And one more thing we want to touch on with you, Ben, while you're here you obviously cover minor league business more than probably anybody in the business. Um, we talked a little bit about this in the last segment with Tyler, but minor league baseball released its attendance figures for the 2019 season. Uh, attendance went up by more than 1 million fans. The increase was 2.6% over 2018. That's one of the biggest growth since 2006, 2007. What do you think drove this? And you know, how do you look at the attendance figures on the whole? Uh, for 2019. Well, obviously, it's a great thing for the industry. Anytime there's an attendance increase, especially because it's a, you know, occurring within this larger landscape of most uh, professional sports leagues, attendance, you know, having plateaued and starting to go down. So it's great to see minor league baseball as an outlier there. Um, I think I'm going to write a story about this for next week. You know, pinpointing what to me is obviously the largest factor because when you look at attendance, especially in something like minor league baseball with 160 teams, you can go down myriad rabbit holes about. The reasons why, you know, from weather to, you know, uh, promotional initiatives nationwide, such as COPA and the Pride Nights, um, and on and on and on and on. Uh, but I think if you really want to break it down and get to what is, to me, clearly the main reason that attendance went up 2.6%, uh, a little over a million fans total, is that there were three new ballparks in 2019, and then there were two teams playing at different levels than they had the year before, uh, and that would be... San Antonio playing a triple-A, replacing Colorado Springs, and then Colorado Springs in the Pioneer League, replacing Helena. So the three new ballparks, Vegas, Fayetteville, and Amarillo, as well as San Antonio and triple-A and Colorado Springs in the Pioneer League, those five ballparks, or those five teams, had a cumulative 800,000-plus uh, uh, you know, growth from their previous year, or the franchise they had been the previous year. Um, so five teams accounted for over 800,000 um, in the in the increase, uh, most dramatically, Las Vegas, who didn't go anywhere, but they went from Cashman Field drawing about three hundred thirty thousand to Las Vegas Ballpark drawing six hundred fifty thousand. So when you're looking at a one million, approximately one million increase, and then even one team <laughs> was responsible for roughly one third of that, it just speaks to uh, new ballparks and uh, you know and and then in other cases. Um, teams playing at different levels that are perhaps more suitable to their, you know, their market and ballpark situation or what have you, uh, that really is the fundamental driver for an attendance increase. And I think the good news for that, so obviously the industry needs to find ways to keep increasing when, you know, there might not be as many new ballparks and, you know, teams that aren't moving to new ballparks obviously need to find ways to maintain and increase. But I think when you look industry-wide at the biggest drivers, uh, it absolutely has to do with, uh, you know, new ballparks and, you know, shiftings in the landscape such as that. And I think we're well positioned for 2020 because we have Mobile, you know, not drawing well, being replaced by Rocket City, who are coming out, I'm sure, are going to come on like, like gangbusters. We have Fredericksburg uh, replacing uh, Potomac and, and the Fitz. We have a, a new ballpark in Kannapolis. And, um, you know, and the old ballpark in Kannapolis had not been drawing well. And uh, we have a new ballpark in Wichita, replacing New Orleans, which had not been drawing well on the AAA level. So I think uh, it's well positioned to grow on that level. And then I think the real challenge for the industry is growing beyond those obvious uh, areas of growth, you know, through new new ballparks. It's uh, 
the more micro level growth that I think every team needs to be focused on and, uh, you know, keep things going. We're, uh, you know, up over the 40 million mark. Minor league baseball is always over the 40 million mark. Um, be great to say, like, can we get to 43 million? Can we get mm. to 45 million? Uh, those would be truly significant. Uh, 2008 is still the all-time record uh, for minor league baseball attendance, and I cannot remember exactly what it was, but let's bring it back to those 2008 levels and then beyond. And then, you know, I think eventually it should be about a billion. <laughs> it set our sights real high. Well, let's yeah. just get the official number out there because I don't think I said it the first time through. 41,504,077 fans passed through minor league gates this season. Uh, like we said, Big growth over 2018. Uh, we can kind of take this as a base level now that Vegas has the new stadium. Uh, yeah, there's a first-year excitement that goes with that, but um, you know all these other ballparks that you mentioned that are going to be added as well for next year, uh, it seems like there's even further growth possibilities beyond this. So excited for 2020. We'll talk about that more down the line. But uh, yeah, for the last in-season, really, podcast of the, of the year, uh, thanks for joining us, Ben. Hey, it's been great to be here, great to be always back, and it's going to be great to be back uh, in the offseason, just next week. Just next week. Final segment on this week's episode of the show before the show, Sam, what's coming up on MILB TV? Yeah, so we, we don't have much MILB TV left, obviously, but like we've been saying the last couple of weeks, uh, tune in to any finals you can get. Minor league baseball is, is finite in terms of how many games we have left in the 2019 season. But especially if you have a Mill TV subscription, tune in next Tuesday for the AAA National Championship. Like we said, right now it's looking like it's going to be Columbus and Sacramento. I'm not going to doubt the Durham Bulls. Potentially they could be back there for a third straight year. We'll, we'll have to see. Um, but that game will be played in Memphis. That's Tuesday at 8 o'clock p.m. Eastern time, whatever your time zone is, adjust uh, appropriately. The game will be in Memphis. Our Kelsey Hennigan will be there. Uh, we're hoping she's going to provide a, a podcast interview with somebody who's, who is at the AAA National Championship. So tune into this podcast next week to hear more about that. And we'll probably have Kelsey on the show to explain her experience and what she saw in Memphis. Um, but tune in for that game when you get the chance, because that is the last Mill TV game on the schedule for 2019 insanity and uh that'll do it for this week's this week's episode of the show before the show he is sam dykstra i'm tyler mom we'll talk to you next week